Welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, Episode 8, the podcast that covers the stories published by DC Comics from the very beginning in 1935. I'm Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website dedicated to providing information about comics from all eras. This episode is the first of two parts in which I'll be covering the features that debuted in DC Comics published in 1936. Keep in mind that most of these early comics had serialized stories that lasted multiple issues. Each issue contained a short installment of each feature, usually two pages in length. To make the podcast more cohesive, instead of covering single issues at a time, I'll be covering entire serials, following the story over multiple issues. To give you some background on the landscape of the times these comics were published, America was still mired in the Depression in 1936. Over in Europe, Hitler was beginning to make noise by breaking the Treaty of Versailles and forming the Axis Alliance with Italy. American Jesse Owens showed up Hitler's master race that year by dominating in the Olympics that summer, which was held in Berlin. It was also notable as the first live sporting event covered by television, although few people owned them at the time. Radio and baseball were still dominating American entertainment. The Green Hornet radio show debuted, and Babe Ruth headlined the first class of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Comic books were still primitive, but there was growth. George Delacourt, the head of Dell Books, had been involved with some of these early promotional comics and comic book precursors. In 1936, Dell Comics was around to stay with the publication of popular comics. Dell was at one time the largest comic book publisher, even bigger than DC and Marvel. Other publishers entered the field too. David McKay packaged many King Features strips such as Popeye, United Features, and other newspaper syndicate issued tip-top comics. Editors John Mann and William Cook left National, taking with them inventory pages and some creators to form the comics magazine, which became the Funny Pages. Their company would eventually go through ownership changes before becoming the foundation of Centaur, another early comic book publishing house. Comic books were, weren't exactly lighting the world on fire yet, but they were establishing a place on the newsstands. Publishers were still looking for a way to make them more profitable. That year, National Allied only published two titles, More Fun, formerly New Fun, and New Comics, which would eventually be retitled Venture Comics. And National wasn't really DC, at least not yet. The company was founded in 1935 by Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson and published comics under the name National Allied Publications. National's first book cover dated 1936 was More Fun Number 7, a continuation of New Fun. The name change was likely made to reduce confusion with National's second title, New Comics. More Fun Number 7 and 8 were printed at a slightly smaller size than issues of New Fun, but they were still 40-page tabloids. The publisher was listed as More Fun Magazine in the Indicia, not National, through number 14. This was still Nicholson's company. It was pretty common for publishers at this time to use multiple company names, even though they had the same ownership. In 1937, Nicholson would get financial backing from Harry Donenfield, the owner of Independent News, a distributor, it was in combination with Donenfeld that the name Detective Comics, Inc. would be created. 
the name from which the initials DC were derived. I'll be covering more on that in future episodes. The contents of More Fun Number 7 were continuations of stories from New Fun. Most of them have already been covered in previous episodes of my podcast. But let's catch up with a couple of the notable continuing features. Little Linda was the Little Orphan Annie knockoff strip created by Whit Ellsworth, which began in New Fun Number 2. Linda gets cover featured in More Fun Number 7. Linda ran away from her rich little friend Buddy because she knew her scheming stepmother would try to get some of the boy's money away from him. So with this issue, we find Linda alone in the country again. But she isn't alone for long. After befriending a hobo, Linda is kidnapped by bank robbers. The crafty little blonde uses her wits to turn the robbers against one another and assist in their capture. In recognition of her service, the mayor arranges to have Linda adopted by the wealthy Silas Flint. Flint's nephew Ned is upset that his place as Silas's heir has been usurped. But upon meeting the little girl, Ned has a change of heart. He even tries to get a job to stand on his own for the first time in his life. When Linda is kidnapped again, Ned assists the federal agents in her rescue. Linda sure does get kidnapped a lot. There was even a scene depicting a public reaction to her kidnap. This might be reminiscent of the public interest in the 1932 kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, one of the most publicized crimes of the 20th century. The baby was found dead two months later. Eventually, the killer, Bruno Hoffman, was found. He was executed in 1936, right around the time this story was published. Fortunately, Linda's case turns out better. Ned helps rescue her and is invited to try out as a G-man, a slang term for FBI agents. When word of the rescue reaches Linda's wicked stepmother, the woman comes to Hillsboro or Hillsdale, the town is called both names interchangeably. Uh, she threatens to make trouble for Daddy Warbucks. Oops, I mean uh, Silas Flint. Flint panics and tries to take Linda to Mexico, but after a run-in with gun smugglers, they return to America. Rather than risk her stepmother regaining custody, Linda runs away again. This time, she makes it to a lumber camp where she earns her keep as an assistant to the cook. Shortly thereafter, a movie crew arrives to film a new movie starring Yvonne Darling, a spoiled child actress. When the girl throws a tantrum, Linda steps in to film a river rescue scene. That's where the series is discontinued in More Fun Comics number 30. I was really pleased with the progression of this strip. The storytelling improved as it went along, and the art, while cartoony in style, was actually not too bad. Ellsworth was also contributing other gags and one-off strips to National during the time he worked on the Little Linda strip. One such feature was called Dear Old Dad. It appeared in New Comics number 3. After his run on Little Linda ended, though, Ellsworth left DC. He would return a short time later as the editor. However, he did not return to the drawing board. He still wrote a few stories, but he wasn't drawing them any longer. Of course, his big claim to fame would come years later when he helped to create the Adventures of Superman TV program. Although Superman himself was still a couple of years away from publication, his creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, continued to supply material to Wheeler Nicholson's comics in 1936. Their Henry Duvall strip was very short-lived, but Dr. Occult continued under the byline Legger and Roots, pseudonyms for Siegel and Schuster. Dr. Occult has a very Clark Kent-looking appearance in a one-and-done story that appeared in Morphine number 10.
a killer calling himself Methuselah, is thwarted when the doctor and a police lieutenant set a trap for him. The killer believed that he would have years added to his life for every person he killed. I think Siegel was still experimenting with storytelling at this point. There's a lot crammed into this two-page story and a ton of exposition in one panel at the end where Dr. Occult addresses the reader directly with the solution to the case. Next up was a three-part werewolf story in which Dr. Occult infiltrates a cult with a female leader. She is transforming men into werewolves. The doctor is nearly injected with the formula which will turn him into a werewolf. At the last minute, he is saved by one of the woman's other victims, who shoots her with a silver bullet. But the most notable Dr. Occult story of 1936, and probably ever, didn't actually begin publication at National. It appeared in the comics magazine number one by Mann and Cook under the title Dr. Mystic, not Dr. Occult. And for the first and only time on this strip, Siegel and Schuster were actually mentioned by their real names in the byline. This was clearly one of the stories taken by the national editors when they left the company. The story begins in black and white as we see a giant man wearing a cowled mask, a cape, and trunks looming over a city. Dr. Occult, called Dr. Mystic in this part of the story, uses an ancient ritual to enlarge himself to the size of a giant. After engaging the giant in combat, Dr. Mystic unmasks his bearded foe who is revealed to be Zator an old friend of the doctor. Zator explains that he came seeking his friend at the behest of the Seven, a group of mystics residing in India. Dr. Mystic and Zator enter the spirit world for a quick transport to the other side of the world. While in the other dimension, they are attacked by the wizard Koth and his minions. The story is then picked up in color back at National, beginning in Morphine number 14, five months after the publication of Part 1. There is no mention that the first part of the story was printed elsewhere. It just resumes in progress. As I've seen in other stories that I've covered, missing chapters were pretty common for these early stories. So I doubt readers following the adventures only in more fun would have even noticed the missing part. I think publishers were starting to get the idea that serialization of stories wasn't necessary in the new comic book format like it was in comic strips. Longer stories were starting to creep into the mix but at least still in 1936, serials were the norm. Dr. Colt, no longer Dr. Mystic, and Zator are rescued from the etherical world by the Seven. They are depicted as spirits, which look like Halloween-style ghosts, basically men with bed sheets over their heads and their bodies. Once they reach India, Dr. Colt is tasked with retrieving a mystical belt from an Egyptian tomb. He is given a uniform like the one worn by Zator. It includes a red cape, trunks, a flesh-colored shirt with a triangular symbol on the chest, and a magic sword. Some fans and historians recognize this outfit as the first superhero costume. It certainly makes Dr. Occult look like Superman with the cape, trunks, and triangle symbol. And of course, it's Joe Schuster drawing it. Clearly he is including elements from the famed Man of Tomorrow, who was, has been created at this point, but it hasn't yet seen publication. Whether historically this should count as the first superhero costume, I'm a little skeptical on that. This isn't Dr. Occult's regular outfit. He wore it only for this adventure. He was back to his regular clothes and a trench coat in later stories. 
Still, I can see how it could be considered the first costume hero. Pretty significant in any case. The adventure continues in more fun number 15 through 17, as Dr. Occult and Zator are opposed by Koth and his men. Occult retrieves the magic belt, which is capable of turning men into stone. When they return to meet the Seven, they are given a science fiction story about Koth's past. Eons ago, his spaceship crashed on Earth. Primordial men killed all aboard except for Koth. Over the centuries, Koth sought vengeance against mankind as he, as he assembled a legion to wipe us out. Using the magic belt, Dr. Occult, Zator, and the Seven repel Koth's army and defeat him. I think Jerry Siegel's storytelling improves greatly beginning with this story. Siegel has been a fan of science fiction pulp magazines, and Koth's origins are definitely influenced by them. Schuster's artwork shows the same style and raw energy that would infuse his early Superman work. Reading this story, it definitely feels very connected to Superman. Early Superman stories would focus more on social injustices than they would on the science fiction elements, so I'd like to think that this was what a Superman story would have been like had Jerry and Joe gone with pure science fiction in those early days. All in all, this was a historically significant story in the early development of superheroes. Jerry and Joe were busy in 1936. A long-running strip by the duo made its debut in New Comics No. 2, cover dated January 1936. This series was called Federal Men and starred Steve Carson, an agent of the FBI. The government organization was formed in 1908, but wasn't named the FBI until 1935. Agents were often known by the slang term G-Men, and their battles against organized crime were a popular fictional genre at the time as they continue to be to, to this day. Steve Carson's first case has him pretending to be a rookie police officer in order to get evidence against a dirty cop named Walsh. Walsh and his partner Kate Lane have kidnapped a child and are holding him for ransom. Steve is able to turn Walsh and Kate against one another. Walsh is caught up after shooting Kate, but more importantly, Carson rescues the child. The first two Federal Men stories are each four pages in length and are not serialized. All four pages are contained in a single issue. New Comics was 80 pages in length, and for the first five issues, it could handle longer stories than its sister publication, More Fun. Beginning with issue number four, Federal Men receives only two pages per issue, so the stories begin to stretch over multiple issues. The stories are action-packed, but Siegel is still delivering a great deal of the story in expositional captions. Steve is drawn in the stock Joe Schuster hero mold. He has the same general look as Dr. Occult and his later creations, Slam Bradley and Clark Kent. In New Comics number 5, Carson saves the life of a very poorly drawn FDR, the President of the United States. FDR would turn up frequently in Golden Age comics, but I think this might be the worst likeness of him I've ever seen. Also of note is the formation of a Junior Federal Men Club, which readers could join by clipping and filling out a coupon sent by mail. Members received premiums. This was, of course, a precursor to the Superman of America Club, formed a couple years later. The first announcement of the club appears in issue number 5, with no mention of prizes or premiums. Oh, and just a reminder, folks, don't clip out coupons from your comics! Steve's Adventures 
include a battle in the air while protecting an airplane manufacturer, a fight inside a submarine, and combat against a criminal gang raiding the U.S. Treasury using a giant tank. In a surprising bit of continuity for the time, the previous battles are mentioned at the beginning of New Comics number 8 by Carson's boss. This was unusual as stories from this time period rarely mentioned previous adventures once the story was over. That issue, number 8, would begin a three-issue story arc totaling 12 pages in which Steve faces off against a giant robot. Once again, Jerry's science fiction and pulp background was in play as many of these scenes look straight out of amazing stories. Also debuting in this same adventure was a spunky female reporter from the Tribune named Jean Dennis, a Lois Lane prototype for sure. The Federal Man series ran until Adventure Comics number 51, published in 1940. While Jerry wrote the strip throughout, Joe turned over the art chores to other creators beginning in 1939 when demand for Superman material increased, leaving him little time to do any other strips. I'll be revisiting Federal Men's stories when I cover the comics from 1937. Artist Tom Cooper, who was already contributing multiple strips to early national comics, had his tale of Castaway Island debut in New Comics No. 2. The story begins at sea, a locale that Cooper is very familiar with, as evidenced by some of his other features that I've discussed in previous episodes. During a savage storm, the captain of a sailing vessel gives the order to abandon ship. One member of the crew, named Larry, is left on board after being knocked unconscious. When the storm finally passes, the ship remains afloat. Larry, who is perhaps 16, thinks he is alone until he discovers a young girl below decks. The blonde-haired girl named Dot is perhaps 10 or 12 years old, and is the daughter of the ship's owner. She does not know whether her father escaped the ship or was washed out to sea. Larry makes some repairs and heads west to find shore. Along the way, they pass an empty rowboat, which can only mean that the crew that abandoned ship was lost at sea. Young Larry soon navigates the yacht to a tropical island. Castaway Island, obviously, although it is not named such as this in this story. Once the pair of kids reach shore, they meet Dougal McDougal, a.k.a. Mac. He speaks with a thick accent. I'm not sure whether he's supposed to be Scottish or Australian or something else. Given that it's in the Pacific, I'm going to assume that he's an Aussie. They also meet a pirate named Blackface. Mac is able to chase off the pirate, but he's worried that uh, Blackface will try to steal the yacht. Mac helps Larry take apart key pieces of the ship and hide them to prevent it from being stolen. Just as they are finishing the work, Sally calls for help. Wait a second. Sally? Who is Sally? Apparently the author forgot the name of the little girl between issues number two and number four. Dot is renamed Sally Mason for the rest of the story. Anyway, Sally has been kidnapped back by Blackface. Mac leads Larry inland, where they find a cave in which the pirate lives. Sally isn't there, but the pirate is. Blackface and his men trap Mac and Larry and take them prisoner. Another ship then appears in the lagoon. Blackface stages an attack and takes the captain of the ship, Jim Shark, captive. However, Mac and Larry use this time to escape. 
At this point in New Comics number 8, the strip switches from color to black and white. I've preferred Cooper's artwork in black and white on, on his other strips, and this one is no exception. The early episodes were a bit below Cooper's usual standard, but still better than most of the other artists doing comics work at this point in time. Mac and Larry follow Blackface back to Sally's yacht, where she is held captive. Blackface begins asking her where the papers are. No real explanation is given as to what these papers are, other than that they belong to Sally's father. By the way, Sally has aged at least four years since we last saw her. She is drawn to look about 16 years old now. In any case, Mac and Larry stage a rescue chasing Blackface off again. The pirate simply goes back to the camp and proposes an alliance with his other prisoner, Jim Shark. Blackface explains that Sally's father is worth millions and there is a reward for her return. How he could know this is not explained. The last the readers saw, her father was believed lost at sea. Maybe Castaway Island had a satellite uplink to the internet in 1936. Mac, Larry, and Sally take the yacht to the other side of the island to hide. Blackface sees them and climbs to the top of an island volcano. He and his men then dislodge boulders from atop the volcano and push them down the slope trying to hit the yacht near the shore. Th this must be one completely vertical side of the volcano. It's kind of weird. Larry avoids the falling rocks. Then he and Mac hatch a plan to escape the island. Since Sally's ship is still damaged from the storm, they decide to steal Shark's schooner. They succeed and head out to sea before discovering that Shark himself is still on board. The captain gets the drop on them and holds them at bay with his pistol. Shark explains that before he reached the island, he crossed paths with Sally's father, who is picked up by another ship. Ah, there goes my internet theory. It was Shark who had the information about the reward offered for Sally, a reward he intends to claim. They make their way to, the, to another island inhabited by natives who are friends with Shark. He intends to hold Sally on the island. He then sends Mac and Larry back out to sea to find Sally's father. When they return to the island with the reward money, Shark promises to set Sally free. Before long, Shark sights another ship approaching. It is Blackface and his men aboard Sally's yacht. The pirate chases Shark around the island, where they eventually find a jewel-encrusted native island. The pirates steal the gems and head for their ship, only to find it beached. That's where the series ends in New Comics number 13. This is actually one of my favorite early stories in New Comics. I really liked Cooper's artwork. I think the trait he excels at more than other artists of this time period is his storytelling ability. The action and words carry the story very well from panel to panel, and the pacing is just right. When I compare this to Siegel and Schuster's stories, for example, I can see how their early work was lacking. The pacing just isn't there, and Siegel often tried to carry the story with exposition. Siegel wanted to be a pulp writer, and I don't think he was very practiced yet at writing for a visual medium. He would get better. It makes me wonder if it wasn't a good thing that Superman took a few years to get accepted. Allowing Siegel and Schuster some time to practice their craft may have resulted in a better product once The Man of Steel did debut in 1938. Unfortunately, this was Cooper's last work at National, and possibly in comics at all. The only work I see he did for other companies appeared in the comics magazine number 1 and 2, a series called The Black Lagoon.
There are some erroneous accounts that I've seen on the internet that that feature was tied to Castaway Island, but I've seen that strip and can confirm that it's unrelated. It's just another maritime-themed Cooper adventure. The last new series to debut in New Comics number 2 was entitled Captain Bill of the Rangers. The first two episodes of the series were drawn by W.M. Allison. Born in 1880, William Merle Allison studied art in Chicago before going on to work for an advertising company. In the 1920s, he provided illustrations to pulp magazines such as The Lone Ranger. He primarily drew western-themed artwork, pictures of cowboys and horses. Not surprisingly, Captain Bill is a western story. After two issues at National, Allison left the company. Allison went to work for Man and Cook's company, which eventually became Centaur. More western material followed in the pages of Star Ranger and western picture stories. He also drew stories for early timely comics, including the Masked Ranger strip, and at MLJ on a feature called Buck Stacy. Both were westerns, of course. Allison, who never married, lived to be 84 years old before passing away in New York in 1964. Captain Bill's story begins with two children, Jane and Johnny, who are visiting the ranch of their uncle Bob. They take the train to the ranch and witness a robbery. Despite the bandit's mask, the kids take notice of his identifying features and report them to Captain Bill, a white-haired ranger with a bristled mustache. Later, they meet the foreman of a neighboring ranch owned by Mr. Lane, whom they recognize as the thief. Johnny and Jane ride into town to tell Captain Bill. Mr. Lane sees them and orders his men to kidnap the kids on their way back. Now here's the, where things take an interesting turn. Allison departed National and took Captain Bill to the comics magazine. It picked up the story right where New Comics number 3 left off and ran for 11 issues. But National also continued running the feature under a slightly different title. Captain Jim of the Texas Rangers. The continuation, drawn by artist Homer Fleming, resumed in New Comics number 4. This version also picks up from the point where number 3 left off. However, Fleming's continuation takes the story in an entirely different direction than Allison's version. In Allison's version, the kids are taken to the Lane's hideout while Captain Bill and the Rangers search for clues. Johnny ties a note to his horse and sets it loose. The horse returns home with the note. Captain Bill uses it to track down the kids, only to find that the outlaws have moved them. In the Fleming version, Jane drops off one of her gloves along the trail. Uncle Bob and Captain Jim, renamed of course, find the glove and follow the outlaws. After using diversions and traps to trouble their pursuers, the outlaws take the kids to a rundown shack. They escape while men are, the men are fighting each other over a poker game. When Captain Jim arrives, he finds that the men have shot one another and the kids are gone. After being chased by wolves, Johnny and Jane are found and taken back to the ranch. The story continues from there in pretty much a standard western style with Captain Jim chasing the outlaws. Jane and Johnny are prominently featured in both the Allison and Fleming versions. The kids are involved in much more of the action than Jim himself, probably to get the readers more invested in the story. In fact, later episodes of the Allison version are actually retitled 
the further adventures of Jane and Johnny, not Captain Bill. The kids and Captain Jim are both captured at different times. Captain Jim seems incompetent to me at times, letting the other people around him actually perform the heroic deeds. He seems like an old man past his prime. I doubt this was intentional. I found Captain Jim to be rather unremarkable as a strip, and downright repetitive. Fleming's art style is very similar to Allison's, but Allison's figures are drawn much more tightly. Sometimes Fleming tends to get a bit muddy, especially when color was added to the strip. None of the characters are particularly identifiable, except for the kids and Captain Jim himself, mainly because of his old age and mustache. Even Uncle Bob, who has a sizable role and is actually more competent than Jim, is drawn very generically. Sometimes it's hard to tell which character was which. Neither artist was really bad, but they weren't very dynamic either. Homer Fleming came from an art background. His father had been a political cartoonist. After attending art school, Fleming drew newspaper strips in the 1920s. Like Allison, he was primarily a Western artist. At D.C., he also drew Buck Marshall in detective comics, Chuck Dawson in action comics, and The Whip in Flash comics. I've mentioned him before when he took over the art chores on Magic Crystal of History, but his work on Captain Jim actually came first. He continued drawing comics at least into the 1950s, contributing a few issues of Classics Illustrated. Fleming remained the artist on Captain Jim until the series ended in New Adventure Comics number 27. In addition to his work on Captain Jim, Homer Fleming created the strip Sandor in the Lost Civilization, which debuted in New Comics number 5. This strip is clearly a Tarzan ripoff. Like Tarzan, the title character Sandor is a dark-haired white man in a loincloth. However, instead of being raised by apes, Sandor was raised by wild dogs in the jungles of northern India. In Sandor's first appearance, he is said to possess superhuman strength which enables him to fight a striped tiger with his bare hands. He is then captured by the minions of his enemy Raja Maraja. They plan to sacrifice him to the favorite leopard of their jungle goddess. Sandor is rescued by the wild dogs and a lion friend named Agra. Fleming's artwork on the strip is different than it was on Captain Jim. It is very moody and with solid black areas denoting shadows. Although their line work is drastically different, his use of blacks reminded me of Hellboy artist Mike Mignola. He draws a particularly nice scene in New Comics number 7, which takes place at night and is lit by moonlight. Sandor's escape from Raja continues, but his wild dog friend Alaka is wounded in the fighting. He meets a faker named Benar, who offers to dress the animal's wounds. While Sandor goes in search of food, Raja's men capture Benar and the dog. The faker is ordered to be executed. Sandor uses an elephant to rescue his friend, but Alaka remains a captive. Sandor infiltrates the palace to rescue the dog, while the Raja demands his capture. The high priest of the city also wants Sandor for unrevealed reasons. When the two finally meet, the priest tells Sandor of documents held in the Raja's treasure chamber. The documents concern Sandor in some way. Action and intrigue follow. Sandor and his friends eventually make it out of the palace, including Jadev, a spy that's working for the high priest, who has smuggled out a jewel casket belonging to the Raja.
Servants of the Raja attack Jadev on the road. One of them retrieves the casket and returns it to the Raja. When opened, they find it contains nothing but pebbles. More action follows as Sandor sneaks in and out of the palace. Along the way, Jadev is captured and sent to the dungeons. Sandor is caught while trying to rescue him. While the strip is started out very strongly, it grows weaker over time. Much of the action seems pointless, and the plot just goes around in circles. This may be because I was reading the serial in one large chunk, which is not the way it was published. The Sandor strip lasted about two years, ending in New Adventure Comics number 27. In serial form, the story progressed in two-page episodes, which expanded to four pages per issue, beginning with New Adventure number 14. Therefore, the repetitive nature of the plot may not have been noticed by someone following the story from month to month. The same problem plagued Captain Jim, but since I was less interested in that story from the start, it was much harder to put my finger on the cause of what was bothering me about the story. Sandor, of course, escapes again, but the story is never resolved. In the last two installments, he finally starts trying to find a way into the treasure chamber, but the series ends before we find out what secrets it might have held. Fleming's artwork is pretty good throughout, though some of the dark, moody feeling disappears after the first few episodes. I think this series had some potential, but could have benefited from a story with some direction. The first female comic book artist, Emma McKean, is back in New Comics number 3 and 4 with a strip called Sarah Lee Sunshine. This is the story of a young girl with a sunny disposition who does good deeds. The story is told entirely in rhyme. Sweet Sarah is a lovely child with the fairest face and ma manner mild, who every day goes forth to find a chance to be good and kind. She carries clothing slightly worn to give th to those who are forlorn. She carries jellies, fruit, and bread that hungry children may be fed. Each night at eight I've heard it said, Sweet Sarah Lou kneels near her bed. And say, dear Lord, I hope and pray that I have done good deeds today. And then our lovely Sarah Lou has dreams the whole night through. In the morning, Sarah's pup barks, I'm hungry, please get up. There's a simplistic innocence to this strip, and you can tell it was intended for younger readers. Or more likely to be read to younger non-readers. This would be McKean's last contribution to National. But nevertheless, her place as the first female artist in comic books should be remembered. Raphael Astorita was a self-taught New York artist born in 1912. In New Comics number 3, he began drawing a strip called King Arthur. The first strip carried the tagline, The Classics, an Illustrated Narrative. Astorita also drew the Alan du Beaufort strip that appeared in New Comics number 1, which I covered in my last episode. His illegible signature is hidden in the first panel of that story, but it matches the signature that appears in some of the King Arthur episodes. King Arthur ended with issue 8. After that, Astorita went to work for the Chesler Shop and the Eisner and Iger Studio. His work appeared at Fawcett, Quality, and later Fiction House. Some of his later achievements included work as a set designer for TV shows, including Tom Corbett in the 1950s. He also opened his own advertising art agency. Astoria lived to be 82 and died in 1994. The King Arthur strip, which ran from New Comics number 3 through 8, was told in the same format, 
as other classic adaptations which had already appeared at National, such as Ivanhoe and Treasure Island. In that style, a panel would depict an event. A caption under the panel would then relate the story. Whether or not this story was derived from a particular work, I do not know for certain. There are a number of Arthurian legends. If it did derive from a work, I suspect it was pulled from Howard Pyle's 1903 book, The Story of King Arthur and His Knights. Those familiar with other versions of the Arthur story will recognize all the standard players, Arthur, Lancelot, Guinevere, and Merlin. The tale is never finished, though. It is discontinued in mid-story. Unfortunately, the format really hurts the story, which is very disjointed. I like some Arthur interpretations, but this one is not told well. The mostly muddy artwork conveys no action, and there is really no uh, connection between one panel and the next. It's like an illustrated novel with pieces missing. New Comics number 3 had 4 pages. Subsequent episodes had just 2. Color was added to the strip in New Comics number 5, as was a script style of lettering. These strips, except for the 2 pages from issue 8, were actually reprinted in Atomic Comics number 1 in 1945, one of those odd non-DC reprint books that I've talked about before. This one actually used a cover swipe that originally appeared in Detective Comics number 8. Office romances are far from unusual, even in the world of comic books. There are many instances of couples meeting each other on the job, or at least by interacting in the same circles. One obvious example of this from recent times is Walt Simonson and Louise Jones. What might have been the first comic creator romance involved two artists in the early days at National. The male half of this couple was John Lindermayer, the artist who drew Oswald the Rabbit and P. Lion and Osa in New Fun. He went on to be an animator at Disney. The woman was Myrna Gamble. She was born in Nebraska in 1910 and went to New York to study art. Beginning in New Comics number 4, Gamble began drawing another of the National Book adaptations. This one was A Tale of Two Cities, the 19th century Dickens novel. The series ran 22 episodes, ending in New Adventure Comics number 25. This also makes her one of the earliest female comic book artists alongside Emma McKean. I don't know the exact details of her meeting with Lindermayer, but the two obviously met and were later married. They had a son, Arnold, who was also an artist. Myrna didn't stay in comics for long. She went on to work in advertising and produced illustrations that were printed in publications such as Life magazine. Later in life, she settled in Arizona, where she lived to the ripe old age of 103. She re recently passed away in February 2013. Shockingly, this adaptation of A Tale of Two Cities does not begin with the famous line, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Instead, it begins with Jerry Cruncher stopping a mail coach to deliver urgent instructions to Jarvis Lorry, who responds with the cryptic phrase, recalled to life. The story follows that of the book, but in such rapid fashion that each chapter is summarized in just about a page. It is a tale of London and Paris during the period leading up to the French Revolution. Like the other adaptations, there are no dialogue balloons. Instead, the text appears under each illustration. Gamble's artwork is quite good, although it became far less detailed over time. The earlier episodes have much more shading and crosshatching 
which give the images a textured feel. Unlike some of the other adaptations which did not finish, the entire Tale of Two Cities novel is represented in this series, which ends in issue number 25. Unfortunately, the rapid pacing and a summary-like telling do not make for a good reading experience. Another adaptation of this book would be done for comics in Classics Illustrated some years later. I haven't actually read any Classics Illustrated comics to know if they've done a better job uh, adapting these books to comics, but so far the National Allied versions have been consistently poor, despite some pretty competent artwork. So far I've covered mainly the serious action strips, but as one might expect, there were a number of humorous features which debuted in 1936. Most were short-lived, like Vin Sullivan's Beanie, which appeared in New Comics number 2 and 3. Beanie is a schoolboy, probably a high schooler. In his first strip, he is chased by a giant cat and a giant shopkeeper, among other things. It turns out to be a dream. In Beanie's next outing, he gets into a fight with a tough kid named Red. When he returns home, he is told to bathe and put on his best clothes to impress his visiting Aunt Matilda. Red, seeking revenge, climbs up to Beanie's window and peppers him with tomatoes. When Matilda arrives, Beanie is a mess. Sullivan also created a strip called Inch, which appeared in New Comics number 4. The byline credits Deanie, Pat or Deanie Patrick, but the art is clearly Sullivan's. Pincus, the cigar-smoking 8-year-old from Sullivan's strips in More Fun, also makes an appearance. In the strip, a young boy named Inch and Pincus gather up the neighborhood cats and try to sell them to potential customers who want to clean up their spilt milk. Another Sullivan short, Licorice, appears in New Comics number 3. Stan Randall, who drew Slim Pickens in Ramblin' Jim, created the humor strip Daredevil Dunk in New Comics number 2 and 3. Dunk is an out-of-work stuntman, assisted by Drizzle, his manager. In the first episode, Dunk passes a store window offering a $200 prize if he can make the man inside laugh. Dunk throws a brick through the window, enters, and begins tickling the man. When the store owner wants restitution for the broken window, Dunk tells him to take it out of the prize money he won for making the man laugh. Next, Drizzle chews out Dunk for performing free rescues. Dunk promises to stop the free rescues and even refuses to help Drizzle when he falls through an open manhole. One of the longest-running humor strips to debut during this time was Andy Handy by artist Leo Omelia, whom I've mentioned before for his work on Barry O'Neill. The Andy Handy strip carried the tagline, A Man of Action, But a Few Words. Just as the tagline indicates, there is little in the way of dialogue in this strip, and no captions. The drawings carry the action. Andy is a balding, middle-aged man with glasses. Each page of the first few episodes are laid out in nine-panel grids, similar to what Dave Gibbons would do decades later on Watchmen. The stories or gags are not nearly as complex, though. For example, the first episode, which appeared in New Comics number 4, features Andy struggling to get the lid off of the jar of olives. Another episode simply shows Andy going outside and getting drenched by rain. He runs home for his raincoat, umbrella, and rain boots. Then he goes outside and the sun comes out. When he drops his heavy rain gear off, the weather changes to rain again. He just can't win. With weather like this, Andy must live here in Oregon where I do.
My favorite gag involves Andy painting the floor of his house. He literally paints himself into a corner. To escape, he removes his belt and suspenders. Tying them together, he makes a lasso to attach to the chandelier in the center of the room. Standing on the radiator, Andy attempts to swing across the room on the chandelier like Luke Skywalker swinging across the chasm inside the Death Star. But along the way, Andy's pants fall down and his weight pulls down the chandelier from the ceiling. Andy slides out of the room with a crash, ruining not only the ceiling, but his paint job as well. Simple stories, clean artwork, pretty decent as these trips go. I liked the physical comedy better than here than I did in Amelia's other humor strip when I was a boy, which appeared in New Comics number one. Andy Handy ran from New Comics number four to New Adventure Comics number eighteen. A rare reprint of his first episode appeared in New Adventure number twenty five. Three additional episodes saw print in between New Adventure number twenty eight and number thirty one. The last of the three no longer carried Andy's tagline, A Man of Action. Instead, two of them carried the tagline, Ain't He the One, Though? Bill Patrick, the artist behind Don Coyote and Cal and Alec, created Hubert, which debuted in More Fun Number 9. Unlike the other two strips, which were kicked off by artist Robert Leffingwell, Hubert was drawn exclusively by Patrick. Jay Muselli is co-credited on the first five strips. I assume he was the writer, but I have no real information about him. Hubert is an older gentleman with white hair. He wears a trademark bowler on top of his oval head and a pair of spectacles perched on his nose. Like Andy Handy, Hubert is physical comedy told with actions, not words. In the first strip, Hubert witnesses a crate of magnets fall from the back of a truck. He tucks a couple of them into the back of his pants and walks away. When he passes a construction site, the magnets are attracted to a steel girder being lifted into the air by a crane. As a result, Hubert is lifted off the ground by the seat of his pants, which are stuck to the rising steel beam. In another strip, we see Hubert reading a book about fishing. He then stands admiring a sword and scabbard hanging on his mantle. He takes the sword fishing with him. In the boat, he removes it from its sheath, ties the fishing line to the scabbard, and tosses it in the water. Before long, he hooks a swordfish with its nose planted firmly into the scabbard. There were ten two-page Hubert episodes. The feature lasted until more fun number 18. The strip from number 14 was reprinted in New Adventure number 25. The strip had some decent gags. Patrick's artwork is nothing special, but it's acceptable. Slim and Tex was a western-themed feature that had a short run beginning in New Comics number 4. The majority of the strip was drawn by artist A. Leslie Ross, a pulp artist who worked on Brad Hardy, which I covered in episode 6. On the surface, this strip might seem like it was an action strip, but it actually started out as a comedy. The story centers around two cowboys, Slim and Tex, who compete over the affection of a girl named Helen. Each episode basically has one of the boys playing a prank on the other to make Helen choose him. Based on the artwork, which is very rough and sketchy, I'm not exactly expecting much from this one, but I was just surprised to find that I found it rather enjoyable. The humor is pretty good and the tone for it is very appealing. The last two episodes drawn by Ross in New Comics number 9 and 10 
take the strip in a more serious direction, as the boys helped Helen turn her place into a dude ranch. The series would continue with art by artist Alex Lovey. Born in 1913, Lovey did a handful of strips at National, including Hope Hazard and Dale Daring, but he soon left to become an animator working for the Walter Lance studio on Woody Woodpecker. Lovey had a long career in the animation field at multiple studios. Some of the characters he worked on as an animator and director include Daffy Duck, Speedy Gonzalez, Yogi Bear, and Adam Ant. Lovey drew the last two Slim and Tech stories. These appeared in New Comics number 11 and 15. Those were the only episodes in color. Ross's work had been all in black and white. Number 15 was four pages in length rather than the usual two. So far I've covered strips by artists that have already been working at National on other features, but a few new names began to break into the field. One of these new guys was Hal Sherman. Born Harold Shisherman in 1911, Sherman worked as an artist animator at the Fleischer Studio prior to his arrival at National. I believe he worked on Popeye. In 1936, he contributed several single-page gag strips, beginning in Morphine Number 9. Sherman continued to provide filler material for DC over the next couple of years. His first feature-length strip was Star Spangled Kid, which he co-created with writer Jerry Siegel in 1941. Sherman continued to draw the character for most of World War II. After the war, he worked. Uh, his work appeared at Better Standard Publishing and on the Harvey characters such as Casper and Richie Rich. Hal Sherman's early gag strips focused on three characters, Chubby, Rusty, and Gee Whiz. Each made at least three appearances in national books, cover dated between March and July of 1936. As the name would suggest, Chubby was a fat kid, but in, uh, in only one of the four strips he appeared in was his enormous size even mentioned. And in that one, it's not portrayed as a bad thing. He climbs into a swimming hole and raises the water level, allowing the other kids to swim. Rusty was a skinny blonde boy. His three strips, which were each two pages in length, in the best one, Rusty is fishing when several other fishermen begin encroaching on his spot. Rusty goes home, puts on a diving suit, and then returns to the lake. He begins attaching junk items to the line of the other fishermen underwater, where they can't see him. His antics succeed in driving the other fishermen away from his favorite fishing hole. Gee Whiz is a young man with a kid brother named Blister. I'm assuming Gee Whiz is his name, but it's not actually confirmed, it's just the name of the strip. In one of the most confusing gags, Wiz is thrown out of his girlfriend's house by his father. The man tells him that he's too young for her. Wiz begins asking people on the street how old they think he is. For some strange reason, a crowd gathers around him as he asks, obscuring him from view. A cop then comes along and arrests him. Wiz is taken to a judge who sends him to jail. Now why would he be arrested for just asking people on the street a question? And the dirty side of me wonders if maybe he dropped his pants while he was obscured from view or something? I don't know. I doubt that was really the intent, but uh, my mind goes some places sometimes. Uh, I guess I just don't get what happened in this strip. Uh, while none of these strips would return later, Blister did make an uh, appearance in an eight-page strip that appeared in More Fun Comics number 29, published a couple years later in 1938. 
Given the time between the appearances, it might not be the same character. His hair is colored differently, which doesn't prove much since this was often the case with these humor strips where the coloring would vary from issue to issue. Uh, characters had brown hair in one issue and then they were blonde in the next. In any case, the Harold Sherman drawn blister story shows the kid trying to do good deeds around the neighborhood, only to have them go horribly wrong. Sherman's artwork is pretty rough on all these strips. I'm afraid it didn't get much better either because his Star Spangled Kid stories were pretty awful as I recall. I'll be getting to those eventually. Um, they didn't start appearing until 1941, which is uh, still several episodes away. Uh, the humor is weak in these uh, comedy strips and doesn't really hold up well over time. I can only guess that this is why Sherman didn't uh, was never given longer, more prominent features, because his stuff just wasn't that good. Uh, it made him an odd choice for Star Spangled Kid, uh, which was given his own book right out of the gate. It's uh, no wonder that Star Spangled Comics wasn't much of a hit, and Star Spangled Kid was soon replaced by the Newsboy Legion as the cover feature. Uh, I'm not a big Hal Sherman fan. The artist known as Alger had strips appearing in nearly every national DC comic in the late 1930s. Alger's real name was Russell Cole. Alger was his middle name. He was born in Kansas in 1889, but he moved to Iowa and found work as an artist at the Des Moines Register. He worked on newspaper strips, including one called Marge. At National, Cole created several long-running gag strips, which began appearing in early 1936. He always signed his comic work using the name Alger. One of his strips was even called Alger's Variety Show. Cole's longest running strip was called Old Oz Bop. It debuted in New Comics number 4 and ran through Adventure Comics number 32. Oz is a middle-aged man who wears a coat, glasses, and a fedora. In his first appearance, he is a lawman. Oz sees a new stranger move into town who appears to be up to no good. The stranger advertises a show starring Canadian quintuplets. Oz thinks he is going to bust the man for false advertising, only to realize that the quintuplets are actually puppies from the same litter. Each of these Oz Bop strips is two pages long. They are drawn in the typical Russell Cole style. That is, that each page is is laid out in six or eight panel grids. The people are the primary focus of each panel, with the main character usually appearing in the center. Backgrounds are usually sparse and very simple. Cole's figures are often very squat in stature, with short, thick legs. The way he depicted a character walking is also very stylized, almost as if he was leaning back and gliding. When two people are walking side by side, they appear to be walking in the exact same uh, gait, uh, where they pick up their foot at the same time as the other person. Goofo the Great was another cold creation which debuted alongside Old Ozbop in New Comics number 4. Goofo was a bun-bulling magician with a Hitler-style mustache and buck teeth. He often wore a top hat. Goofo started out as a two-page feature before dropping down to a single page beginning in New Adventure Comics number 15. This strip lasted through issue 28. Two additional strips appeared under the Goofo the Great name. They were published in Adventure Comics number 37 and Detective Comics number 42, well after the series was over. Oddly, in neither strip does Goofo match his earlier physical appearance. 
I suspect that these were just random coal strips uh, that just had the Goof of the Great heading added to them. The last two old Ozbob strips were like that too, though the character uh, physical appearance was not as drastically different. In those, the lead char character still looks like Oz, minus the glasses. Since the characters were rarely called by name in the dialogue and there were no captions, they could almost get away with that. One character that couldn't be replaced by a random guy was Sam the Porter. This Russell Cole strip debuted in New Comics number 5 before moving to More Fun with issue 11 the very next month. Over the next two years, Sam's strip would appear irregularly in both titles. Sam was a black man who worked at an unnamed hotel. He wore a button-up bellman uniform complete with cap. Sometimes his strip was printed in black and white, but when it was in color, Sam's uniform varied. Sometimes it was red, other times it was white or yellow, most often it was blue. Unfortunately, as often happened during these times, Sam was depicted as a caricature. Even his speech pattern followed along these lines. Fortunately, it was it was Sam who usually delivered the punchlines to the gags while he carried bags for hotel guests. He wasn't the butt of the jokes. In contrast to the humor gags of Hal Sherman, Coles were generally better. There were some jokes that made no sense at all to me, but I suspect that might just be because of the 1930s time frame, which I don't have a frame of reference for. The fourth of Cole's regular characters to debut in 1936 was Woozy Watts, who debuted in More Fun number 9. This technically makes him the earliest to appear since that issue went on sale just before New Comics number 4, where Ols Osbop and Rufo debuted. Woozy's physical appearance is a cross between these two characters. Like Oz, Woozy is a balding man, often wearing a suit. He often wears a hat, too. But Woozy looks more, Woozy's hat looks more like a bowler than a fedora that Oz wears. Woozy's eyes are drawn like Bufo's. Both have very high eyebrow arches. Unlike Cole's other strips, the Woozy Watts strip develops a narrative that continues from issue to issue. This series begins with a couple one-off adventures, where Woozy takes a job carrying a sandwich board and tries to catch a butterfly. Beginning in More Fun number 11, he gets kicked off a boat and stranded on an island. Upon his arrival, he finds a note that says, Save me! But first, he must save himself from, by finding food. During his search, he meets a number of strange characters, including Whiskers, Oogla, and an Oxford professor. The people on the island want to find the person who wrote the note. Woozy gets caught between them. Meanwhile, back on the mainland, Woozy is named the heir to a fortune. A reward is offered for finding him. The ship captain reveals that he is in the Ghoulie Islands. A search party is sent, but the kidnapper, Black Tom, is also on the trail. On the island, Woozy follows a series of notes which lead him to the person everyone wants, a woman in a red dress. Her name is Smith. She has a dog which Woozy names Duke that carries papers all over the island, including the notes that Woozy has been finding. Woozy befriends the woman, who has been kidnapped and kept in a small area on the island. Woozy also stumbles across a treasure on the island that he keeps secret and doesn't tell the woman about. The strip runs in two-page segments through issue number 29. No conclusion to the story is ever reached. Many of the details in the story are only picked up by reading in between the lines. 
One technique that Cole uses to tell the story, especially on the mainland, is to show the reactions of random people, rather than directly showing events. These reactions are shown as people follow the search for Woozy in the news. They speculate on whether Black Tom will find him first, even though Tom himself does not appear in the strip until the very last episode. Women gossip about Woozy. They say he is not handsome, but they think he will make a fine husband now that he is the heir to a fortune. The island story is a bit confusing. We never actually see Smith's captors. The strange characters at the beginning are written out, but they are either part of the faction that is holding Smith or looking for her. Despite the different style of storytelling, or maybe because of it, I was interested in this story. I wish it had been allowed to reach a conclusion. More Russell Cole mysteries will appear in the pages of Detective Comics, which I'll be covering soon. Harry Lewis was another new humor artist at National. Unlike Cole and Sherman, Lewis did not stay long. He contributed two strips, Our Kids in New Comics and Bobby and Scotty in More Fun. Our Kids was an Our Gang ripoff, uh, Our Gang being the Little Rascals, and featured a group of four boys, and it first appeared in New Comics number four. The kids witness a new kid move into town who is given a quarter by his father. The kids try to earn the favor of the new boy, who is a bit stuck up. The new boy orders a chocolate soda at the candy store, but refuses to share with the other boys. A bit later, everyone leaves. The four boys then run back into the shop and order chocolate sodas for themselves. Obviously, off-panel, they have beaten up the new kid and taken his change. The new kid returns home with a black eye. I can find little information about Lewis himself. His short tenure in comics and a name that is hardly unique makes it hard to dig up information on him. His only other comic work that I'm aware of appeared in one issue at Centaur. I find his art style to be rather creepy looking. His characters have overly large heads with huge eyes and eyelashes. The second Lewis strip, Bobby and Scotty, ran just two episodes spaced far apart. The first was published in issue 9, the next over a year later in issue 20. Bobby is a young boy and Scotty is his dog. In the first strip, he plays pranks on his older sister's boyfriend. In the next one, he and Scotty compete with other neighborhood boys in dog races. Neither strip is particularly memorable, except for the creepy artwork. There is one oddity with the Bobby and Scotty strip in More Fun Number 9 that brings to light some information on the printing and production of these early comics. When I first acquired this issue on Microfiche, I noticed that pages seemed to be out of order. Both Woozy Watts and Bobby and Scotty were two pages in length, yet the second page of each strip appeared in the front of the book on pages 10 and 11, while the first page of each strip was in the back on pages 54 and 55. I didn't think this was how the issue was actually printed. I just assumed the pages were photographed out of order or the microfiche was laid out incorrectly. As part of this project, I've been reading the entire contents of these issues, including the text pages. Lo and behold, there is a note on the fun mail page explaining the mix-up. It reads, Readers, attention! No, it isn't a joke. Somebody just mixed up two of the colored comic pages in this issue and messed up the continuity. You'll have to turn to the back of the magazine to find the first page of Bobby and the first page of Woozy Watts. 
Then turn to the front of the magazine for the second pages of each of these. Thanks. So this note tells me two things. First, the issue was indeed printed with the pages out of order. Not a big deal as production mistakes go, although I'm sure modern readers and internet trolls would freak out and call for someone to be fired for this mistake like they did with the Hawkman archives. Shame on them. The second thing this note tells me, though, is far more interesting. It must have been written and printed after the mistake was printed and discovered. Generally, these comics from National had both color and black and white sections. In this particular issue, the outer wraps were in color, while the inner wraps, included, including the centerfold, were in black and white, with some red highlights. Clearly, for this note to exist, the black and white section had to have been printed at a different later time than the color section. The error in the color section had to have been discovered, then the note written and inserted, next the black and white section could be printed, and the final book assembled. I've always known that covers were printed separately, and it's not a stretch to assume that sections were also printed separately, but I thought everything would have been sent to the printer at the same time, not piecemeal which would allow for the final content of the black and white section to change after the printing began. Just a production oddity, but one I found rather interesting. On the same page as the note about the page mix-up is fan-submitted artwork. There was a contest with prizes for readers to submit their art, which appeared in the early letters pages. This particular issue has a picture of a boy falling asleep in a chair with a copy of Fun Comics. Above his head are images of the fun characters in his dreams. The caption below the drawing states, This drawing by Kenneth B. Bald, age 14, of Mount Vernon, New York, wins a dollar. The artist, Kenneth Bald, would later have a long career in comics, beginning at Jack Bender's studio, which produced comics for Fawcett. He moved over to Marvel in 1943, where he drew Captain America and Patsy Walker. He later drew romance comics for ACG and newspaper strips in the 1960s and 1970s. I find it interesting that this fan art was his first published work while he was still a teen. Given the Major's behavior for not paying the bills or his creators, I wonder if Ken ever got his dollar. In my last episode, I mentioned that some of the early comics contained artwork that acted more like pinups than stories. Walt Kelly drew a few of these art pieces, such as Gulliver's Travels, before moving on to the field of animation. These art pieces continued to appear in comics of 1936, drawn by different artists. One such piece was the Stratosphere Special, which appeared in New Comics number 4 and 5, signed by artist Serene Summerfield. Serene's real first name was actually Serena. Born in 1885, she was an older, unmarried woman, the third to be published at National. She would later be associated with the Jerry Iger and Will Eisner shop. A retooled version of the Stratosphere special called Space Limited was published in Wow, What a Magazine, a publication from Iger's shop. However, this may have been Summerfield's only work in comics. So what was the Stratosphere special? It is a science fiction-based piece which shows a golden sphere being readied for a weekend excursion to the moon. The sphere is rigged to ropes and cables that connect it to an unseen space-faring balloon. The landing on the moon is also depicted. In New Comics number 5, 
we are shown the Earth men meeting little green men who live inside the moon. Aren't little green men supposed to be from Mars? In any case, it's a fairly interesting look at science fiction of the time, though I'd say that it's more amateurish than what was appear appearing in magazines like Amazing Stories. Three more art pieces appeared as centerfolds in More Fun number 9 through 11. These contained no loose narrative like the Stratosphere special and were drawn by an important artist in the world of 1930s comics, Craig Flessel. Flessel's career began as an assistant on Dixie Dugan, a newspaper strip. At National, he would create Pet Morgan, a long-running strip that started in New Fun, but would eventually appear alongside a certain Man of Steel in Action Comics number 1. He also drew several memorable covers for More Fun, New Adventure, and early issues of Detective Comics. Although he wasn't the first artist to draw the character, Flessel had a long run on the Sandman strip in Adventure Comics. This included art for the cover of Adventure Comics number 40, the Sandman's first appearance. Flessel had a long career in comics which lasted well into the 1970s. He worked on characters such as Superboy, The Shining Knight, and Speed Saunders. Flessel lived to the age of 96 before passing away fairly recently in 2008. In his later years, he gave several interviews to comic historians and was the last living link to the Wheeler-Nicholson era of DC Comics. Flessel's first work appeared in More Fun No. 9 and was entitled Acorn Antics. It depicts elves collecting acorns in a tree. In More Fun No. 10, he drew Fishy Frolics, another centerfold art piece featuring a race of underwater merfolk. The last of these centerfolds drawn by Flessel was entitled The Old Swimming Hole. It shows a group of young boys skinny dipping in a pond. These illustrations were of nice quality, especially when compared to the other comics appearing in these issues. Each picture had an illustrated border which adds to the scene. After filling in for artist Clemens Gretter on the Don Drake strip in More Fun No. 10, Flessel got the chance to create his first comic feature that appeared in New Comics No. 5. It was entitled Steve Conrad on Dolorosa Island. Steve Conrad is an adventurer and inventor of the Cyogen Cruiser, a speedboat capable of traveling at speeds over 250 miles per hour. Steve is the typical hero type, dark-haired, handsome, and physically gifted. He is the leader of an expedition to Dolorosa Island. The island off the coast of Chile is said to be a tropical island with a mountain range, treacherous swamps, dense jungles, and an abundance of vegetation. However, it is not inhabited by man or beast. Joining Steve on the excursion are botanist Keith Rowland and Captain Hugo Judd. Soon after their departure, the trio discover a stowaway on board the boat, Myra Rutherford, the daughter of the man financing the excursion. Soon after reaching the island, a storm hits. Keith and a crew member named Sam are washed out to sea. They end up making it to a huge rock miles from the main island. The others survive the storm, but their boat is wrecked. They also encounter natives living on Dolorosa Island, despite the fact that it was thought to be uninhabited. The natives, known as the Zoanthropus, are under the leadership of the great Devachan, a white man. The Devachan orders the explorers captured and killed. This gives Steve the opportunity to go into action by heroically rescuing Myra. In doing so, they fall into a volcano. 
deep underground, they discover a series of passages and waterways. They are also reunited with Keith and Sam, as the passageway must have been connected to the offshore rock on which the other pair landed. More excitement follows when the group is attacked by scaly fishmen under the rule of Professor Brombray. Later, the professor's name is changed to Bromberg. He and his sea people are attempting to overthrow the Devachan. They force Steve to help them in their revolt. A battle between the two sides ensues. Fearing defeat, the, Je the Devachan returns to his palace to activate a device which will destroy the island. This, of course, is an island that was supposed to be uninhabited, yet we have two tribes living here, led by white men, and technology that can blow up the island. Okay, sure, whatever. Meanwhile, Captain Judd has signaled a passing schooner commanded by Captain Joel. Steve and his friends barely make it off the island and aboard the schooner before the Devachan activates the destruct device. The only survivor of the resulting explosion is the Devachan. He is left adrift in the waters, but somehow is able to catch up with the schooner and board it secretly in the night. He attacks Steve and both men fall overboard. Steve wins the fight in the water, then Myra dives into the water and brings him a rope. However, the rope is cut and the trio are swept away from the boat. They wash up on the shore of another island inhabited by women. Wait, is this Steve Conrad or Steve Trevor washing up on the shore of Paradise Island? No, no, it's not the Amazons led by Queen Hippolyta. Their leader is named Tangi, and this is known as Boa Island. Tangi has a tiger named Neka as a pet and wants Steve dead. Steve and Myra are lashed to jungle vines by the women and left for the vultures to devour. Steve is rescued by a monkey. He then fights off the vulture. When he returns, Myra is gone. The Amazons have taken Myra back to their village. They believe she has survived the vulture attack because she is a goddess, a belief that Steve helps Myra build up. However, the Devachan has revived and begins working with Tangi. While Steve and the Devachan fight, the island is invaded by bronze men from another island who come seeking wives. They claim Myra, so Steve must fight them off one by one. He wins the fight only to discover that the Devachan has escaped with Myra. The Devachan takes Myra into the swamps where they are captured by a tribe of alligator men. Myra is forced to become the bride of the alligator man king, Olam. Steve comes to her rescue. Myra temporarily feigns loyalty to the king and orders Steve jailed. But this is only done in order to aid the rescue attempt. The couple successfully escape into the jungle, but the Devachan awaits them there. He traps them in a quicksand bog where they slowly begin sinking to their death. Steve's monkey friend goes for help and finds a lone explorer in the jungle. Will Steve and Myra escape the quicksand? Will the monkey bring help in time? Will the Devachan finally be defeated? We'll never know because the series ends abruptly in New Adventure Comics number 25. This was a great action-adventure strip, and parts of it reminded me of Indiana Jones, which itself was influenced by old movie serials. Russell's artwork is inconsistent over the run of the series, ranging from really good to just about passable. While the actual figures may have been inconsistent, the storytelling techniques used by Flessel were consistently some of the best of the period. Along with Tom Cooper, I think Flessel had the best grasp of the visual medium and his story flowed very well throughout. 
I wish there had been more of this story, and I can't say that all about all the features I've covered so far. Some of them were a real trial to get through. Captain Jim and the Rangers? I'm looking at you. Anyway, Steve would actually return for more adventures two years later, drawn by artist Jack Letty. I'll be covering those adventures in a later episode. Alright, it's time to check out the mail now. My mailbox hasn't exactly been blowing up with comments about this show. I realize that the subject matter is largely unfamiliar to many listeners, but I'd still love to hear what you guys have to say. So write into the show and let me know what you like, what you don't like, or whatever else you want to say. It doesn't even have to be about the show. Questions or comments about comics in general are fine too. I do run a website devoted to comics of many errors and publishers. So get off your butts and write in. Here's a letter I did receive recently. Greetings, Mike. First off, I just want to say how much I love and use your site. It's incredible all the information you have on there. I also really love your podcast on the Two True Freaks Network. I myself am looking into getting into podcasting, and I'm looking to start my own daily Superman podcast. I thought the world needed its thousandth podcast devoted to the last son of Krypton and was looking at doing a breakdown of some milestones for Superman in one of my early episodes. So I was doing some research into January 1955, the first month the Superman comics hit the stands with the Comics Code Authority emblem on the cover. Based on your site, it looks like World's Finest number 75 and Superman number 96 went on sale January 25th, while Action Comics is listed to have gone on sale on January 27th. Did they really have two different days a week that comics went on sale back then? I see that Jimmy Olsen number 4 shipped on the 6th, so Action was exactly three weeks behind it. Did the other two go on sale early? I'm not familiar with the shipping and on-sale practices back then, so I don't know if I caught a typo or if they were really releasing comics on multiple days back then. I'm just looking for clarification and wanted to alert you in case some of the dates are wrong. I can't stress enough how awesome your site and podcast are. I'd love to have you on my show sometime once I get it off the ground and running. Thank you, Kyle Benning. Hello, Kyle. Uh, I have done ex extensive research on release dates through all periods of comic history. Yes, comics did indeed go on sale twice a week for decades. The release days, the release days changed over time and often depended on the publisher or the distributor. At DC, books from 1946 to 1954 went on sale on Wednesdays and Fridays. In October 1954, they switched to a Thursday and Tuesday release days, which lasted until August of 1962. From 1962 to December of 1965, DC released comics weekly, usually on a Thursday. Twice a week shipping resumed in January 1966, and continued until April 1976. Contrast this with Marvel, which during much of the Silver Age released comics just twice a month, usually the first and second Thursdays of the month. DC also went to twice monthly shipping beginning in October 1978, following the DC implosion. The current Wednesday release date is a relatively recent change implemented in the direct market following the distribution wars that plagued the mid-90s and resulted in Diamond obtaining a nearly monopoly on the comic distribution market. Prior to that, books could go on sale on different days depending on the distributor. 
For more information on the topic, I'll put some links up in the show notes to two articles I wrote on the subject years ago. My research at that time uh, included only DC information. Since then, though, I've done additional research on the topic to expand my findings to all publishers. Recently, I've updated the uh, records um, based on some information I've obtained from the Library of Congress. Um, thanks for the question, Kyle. Good luck with your podcast, uh, and I'd love to be a guest once you get up and running. All right, so that's all I've got this time around. Uh, come back next time for 1936 Part 2. I promise I'll get around to doing some superhero stuff eventually. Uh, thanks again to the Two True Freaks for distributing my show. You can send feedback to mike at dcindexes.com or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Mike's Amazing World of DC History. <laughs>